0: one of the most effective without question coaching points has always been and will always be the bench somebody's not doing what he's supposed to be doing put him on the bench or put her on the bench that's always been a great teacher it always will be a great teacher and if you're afraid to do that or if your players know you're afraid to take a certain guy out or a certain lady out that's not a good thing taking a player out to make a point is oftentimes a very good thing
1: Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NBA and NCAA head coach and current ESPN basketball analyst, PJ Carlissimo. Coach Carlissimo is here today to discuss career windows for a coach, when to stay, and when to take a chance, where experience matters the most. Where we talk post passing and end of game sideline out of bounds thoughts during an always fun start sub or sit in 2022 we're excited to continue growing and building the value of slapping glass plus find out more my current members at all levels from over 20 countries are calling sg plus the best platform to connect learn and explore the craft of coaching visit slappingglass.com for more information today we hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach PJ Carlosimo. Coach, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We're really excited to talk to you.
0: Good to be with you guys, even early in the morning, Pacific time. (laughs)
1: That's right. That's right. Well, coach, we're going to get into a lot of different areas of the game today with you. But we wanted to start with thinking about career windows as a coach and times where you would leave for a job, times you might stay, different times in your career where maybe you would think about those kinds of things in a different way. And so, for someone like yourself that's had success. You, know, you were a college coach well before you were an NBA coach for two decades and had success there and then also success in the NBA how do you think about a career and maybe how young and you know middle of the road coaches in their career think about those changes
0: yeah i was lucky dan my father was an athletic director a football coach really by trade and and wanted no part of me getting into this profession and you know wanted me to do something gainful with my <laughs> life and have a job where there was some <laughs> security and, you know, you could do good things. And of course I didn't listen. I actually caught a break. Digger Phelps was coached my senior year. He coached one year at Fordham and, and I didn't play that way. I set the opposite end of the bench from him down there, but <laughs> we had a great year and Digger left for Notre Dame after one year. The team was 26 and three. And I was supposed to go to law school and Digger decided to go to Notre Dame and Hal Whistle got the job. Hal came over from Lafayette Later on, he won national championship at Florida Southern and then coached for a long time in the NBA as an assistant coach. Hal gave me an opportunity to coach. I guess nowadays you'd call it a graduate assistant, but I didn't go to a lot of the grad classes and I was making $500. I coached the golf team. I couldn't golf (laughs) and I sold popcorn at the football games, but I was 22 and I was happy when you're that young, you know, you don't care. You take a job and I did that for four years. And I answered an ad in the New York Times. New Hampshire College job was open, athletic director and head coach. And I applied and got the job. George Larkin gave me an opportunity. I went up there. I actually thought I'd be in New Hampshire for a while. And the Wagner College job opened up, which was a Division Three job at the time in New York City. And I think they'd had about eight or ten straight losing seasons, and they wanted to go Division One, which was really strange. And as usual, and has happened with me a couple times. Nobody else wanted a job. The more intelligent people said, (laughs) you know, why would you take that job? You can't win there. But when you're at that point, I was 24 or 25. And again, it was the athletic director, Larry He had a profile in mind. He wanted somebody who had been at a division one school. I wouldn't say I played, but I was on the team at Fordham for four years. And that was his profile. He wanted a division one school in New York City. And so I got the job. So my decisions were easier decisions. I think I was lucky. I was single. I wanted a coach. I got a chance to be a head coach at Wagner. And I think that's a good thing when you get to make those mistakes. So many guys now, more so in the NBA, but you've seen it a little bit in college nowadays, people are getting their first jobs. A lot of former players or guys who really have not been assistants. I was lucky. I got to be an assistant for four years for Hal Whistle. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot at New Hampshire and at Wagner by making a lot of mistakes, which young coaches get to do. And by the time I got the Seton Hall job, I still wasn't. It was six years later and the Hall was struggling. They were at the bottom of the Big East. I ended up being at the Hall for 12 years before I got out of there. Not that we turned it around. We eventually got to the top. We got to the Final Four, the championship game. For me, the decisions were easy. I think for people that have a family. I, so many coaches, contemporaries of mine, had success and struggled because the first opportunity they got when they had a little bit of success was either more money or a more prestigious job, a better conference. But they sometimes got themselves into situations where they didn't have enough time to get it turned around. And the guy went from being, you know, kind of the flavor of the month on top of the profession And all of a sudden they made a move. That was a tough move. I never felt really a lot of pressure again. And I make a big deal of it. I got married when I was 51. I was single all that time. And, you know, I always felt, hey, if I messed up, I could go back and be an assistant somewhere. So I've seen so many people make bad decisions. It's hard. You don't know. You never. I mean, sometimes there's no brainers. It's a great job with good returning players and you know you're going to have success right away. But you usually don't get those type of jobs. Usually the jobs that are open are rebuilding situations or tough jobs. And that's where you got to make a decision. And oftentimes the family's a major factor. Do you want to move your family? Do you want to put them in a situation where all of a sudden in two, three, four years at most, you're going to be on a hot seat? Security is is not going to be there. And and what are you going to do? So I I think it's so much a personal decision. And I think the thing I've always done is I've leaned on people. I've had good people advise me. I, I think if you have some people Usually they're older. I don't want to say you have to be old to know, but usually <laughs> they've made enough mistakes themselves. They can help you. They can give you the pros. They can give you the cons. And hopefully they're good enough friends. They're going to level with you and say, "Hey, that's going to be a hard job to turn around. Yeah, you're making more money than you're making right now, but where you are, you've built a nice situation. You can probably continue to be successful. Maybe a better job's going to come along next year. Or you know, what type of school do you want to be at? What division do you want to be at? A big school? What area you live in? Like there's so many factors that go into where you're going to coach, which of those factors is the important thing. It's not just how much money you make. It's really not just that's a better conference or that's a division one job. You're at a division two school. Sometimes division two school where you can win is a great stepping stone. You can improve your coaching skills. And then when there's a job out there, maybe you got to pick up your family and move. I think a lot of us in the profession name of the school or division one versus division two or whatever it is, you go somewhere and you don't know enough about the situation. You don't know the athletic director well enough or the president. You're not sure of the school's commitment until you get there. So as much information as you can accrue before you make that decision, you know, sometimes you just feel so good. You're talking to somebody or you're interviewed and they offer you a job and you go, Ooh, I I got (laughs) to take it. That can be a mistake and that can really shorten your coaching
2: career. Coach, obviously, at such competitive levels, being fired is part of the job or comes with the job, hopefully not part of it.
0: NBA in particular. (laughs) That's a way of life for most people in the NBA. Excuse me for interrupting you, Patrick. Getting fired was a good thing for me. Coaching in tough situations at Wagner and at Seton Hall, my early years, was good for me. I always felt that having a 2-24 and season and going through the growing pains we did at Seton Hall gave me a better perspective. Some guys are just luckier. They're just better coaches. They win right away. They never lose. They never have to deal with the adversity or the student body, you know, hanging them in effigy or wanting to get rid of them or stories being written, you know, critical stories in the newspaper. Doing all that stuff when I was young, I always thought, help me. I thought it helped me when I was in the NBA. I thought it helped me throughout my MBA career. Some guys have success all the time and they think they're geniuses and they never understand it. There's another side to it. So yeah. uh, sometimes I think that perspective is is a good thing. I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but it gives you a much better perspective sometimes. And the NBA brings that home. For, other than Phil Jackson, there aren't too many people that haven't struggled or haven't been fired or haven't had to move somewhere else. The NBA, it's a way of life college, it's about the coach and you go pick the players. And it's a totally different situation in the NBA. Usually your 10th man's making more money than you're making. It's a lot easier to get rid of a coach (laughs) in the NBA and move on. And uh, that's just the way of life in the NBA.
2: That is my question. Then how do you know when that window's closed as far as the head coaching job and whether, okay, at this level, I can be a really good assistant or do I want to go back to college?
0: That's a tough call. That's a very tough call. we talked about guys before. Rick Patino went back and forth a couple of times. Went from a Nick assistant. He had really good success with New York. Then he went to somewhere before Kentucky. Then he went to the Celtics. Then he's at Louisville. Rick went back and forth. But you look at Lonnie Krueger was in Atlanta and then went back and had great success in college right to the end. He'd still be coaching if he wanted to. Leonard Hamilton back and forth, came into the league, then went back and has had great success at Florida State. Tark went back. Everybody forgets that Tark coached in San Antonio for a while and struggled. And then, of course, the UNLV was unbelievable. You know, for a lot of years, Tom Izzo used to call me. I told him to stop calling me. (laughs) He did offer a pro job like every spring and he could never make his mind up whether to pull the trigger (laughs) or whether to go. And he turned down Cleveland right before LeBron went back. Obviously, if he'd known LeBron was coming back, he would have taken the job. But Dan Gilbert wanted him in the worst way. And Mike Krzyzewski was offered pro jobs a hundred times and, you know, always wavered whether to do it. He almost went to LA one time. I forget who got the job when, he decided not to go, but, and then he went on, of course, to great success with the Olympic team with a lot of those pro guys, but sometimes it's a no-brainer. It's just a question of whether you want to do it or not. I always felt it's a different job, but if you like coaching basketball, the NBA is the best place to be. There are things about college basketball that you can never duplicate in the NBA, and I love both of them. People say, which one do you like better? I don't like one better, but I will say this. Jim Valvano always said, he used to complain in a good way. He would say, we do so many, things all year, be it fundraising and getting your guys summer jobs and making sure they're going to class and umpteen other things that go, particularly the lower level you're at. And when V was at Iona before he was at NC, he was at Johns Hopkins, he was at Iona, and then he was at NC State. And he would go, we do all this stuff. We only get to coach 26 times. Or if you're really good in those days in college, 30 games, you get to coach 30 games. And it's true. I was never good at budgeting time. You would struggle to have meetings with your assistants. I I think a big fault we all have is we don't coach our assistants as well. Everybody worries about coaching their players and they don't coach their assistants. And sometimes in college, even at the hall, when I had great assistants and we had a really good situation in the Big East Conference, I wouldn't carve out the time to sit down with my assistants for an hour, an hour and a half before practice and go over the whole practice and what they were going to do. Too many times it was hand them the practice plan and you're going to be here, you're going to be there. and you know. They'd done it before yeah. with me. So you'd get through it, but you didn't do as good a job. Then you take a job in the MBA and forget all that other stuff. There's no going to <laughs> class. There's no summer jobs. Yeah. There's no raising money for the school. There's no doing 18 other things, talking to faculty. And what time's the next practice? What time's the next shoot around? What time's the next game? When is the charter leave? So you're doing nothing but basketball. So you got time to sit down. With your assistants for a couple hours, and they might even participate in you putting the practice plan together. And Patrick, you're going to do this. And, you know, Danny, yeah. you're going to do that. And you'd just be so much more prepared. I felt like when I got in the NBA, I always felt like not the same thing, obviously. I felt like I was a surgeon going in the operating room. Everything was organized. This was great. It was unbelievable. All you did was basketball. The next practice, the next shoot around, the next game it was none of the other stuff. So it finally, figured out what V was talking about, and you get to coach 100 games. If you're good, you play 82 games. You play, in those days, eight preseason games. That's 90, and then if you made the playoffs, you get over 100 games a year. You're coaching the best players in the world, in the best arenas in the world. You're traveling as good a way as you can travel. It's brutal travel, but you can't do it any better than the way they do it in the NBA. You know, it's like it's nothing but basketball now. You don't have those relationships with players Guys stay with you for, well, in the OVs stay with you for four years and graduate <laughs> and have right, relationships yeah. with them and their family and what it's like to be on a college campus. It's fantastic. So it's different. But from a basketball standpoint, if you like basketball, well, you know, coaching in the NBA, that's all you do. You watch tape, you get ready for the next practice, the next shoot around, and the next game. It doesn't get any better than
2: that. Hey, coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, InStat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self scout and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation.
1: Well, coach, we're going to flip now to a game that we play here on the show called Start sub, or sit. And so we will give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we can kind of go from there and have a fun discussion around it. So this first one, a little bit of, I guess, a cousin of what we've been talking about theme-wise, but has to do with the value of coaching experience and where coaching experience is most valuable for a coach. So start, sub, or sit experience being most valuable in end-of-game situations. Being most valuable in managing the flow of a season, the ups and downs of how to schedule practice and how hard to push them, how not hard to push them, or in the psychology and interactions with athletes. So knowing how guys are as people, how to handle them. So start, sub, sit, those three different types of experiences.
0: Well, the sit is easy. The sit is the end of game situations. Anybody can do that. If you're organized and, you know, particularly nowadays, it used to be a big deal to be on TV. I remember one of the reasons the Big East skyrocketed was ESPN and Big Monday and Gavit was brilliant. You know, certain leagues played Tuesday and Saturday. We played like Monday, Tuesday, and everybody said, why is the Big East so spread out? It's because of TV. Dave had us on TV every night somewhere. So it was incredible. But end of game situations, no, that's the last one. That's it. Are they important? Yeah, it's important. But if you've got a good staff, if you're organized, you can handle that. The other ones, it's a tough call between those two. I would say the overall picture is where the experience comes in more because you can get yourself in trouble. If you don't have the perspective to look at the big picture and understand everything that goes with being a head coach in particular, frankly, whether it's in the NBA or in college, I'd have to say that's important. It's close. So, sub, yeah, draw. It's really difficult if you can't handle your players. If your players don't play for you, respect you and your staff, then you're not going to be coaching very long. But I still think that where experience matters the most and where it's happening in the NBA on a regular basis now, there's almost a designated position in the NBA now for an old Harry assistant coach. Like, you got to have a guy who's Been a head coach in the league and has that perspective. Because you got guys coaching the league that have never been a head coach. They've never put a practice plan together. There's so many other things that go into it in terms of pacing your players, not beating up your best guy, and playing him too many minutes. And I think the perspective that comes with the experience of being a head coach slight edge over handling players. Handling players is really the name of the game, but I still think you know if you're lucky enough to have good players and good assistants, you might be able to figure that one out, particularly if you've been a former player yourself. If you haven't been a head coach, you're going to be confronted with some things that you never realized were part of the job where experience is really going to matter.
1: So coach, would love to talk about all these with you, but I actually like to talk about the sit and the end of game situations and how you said that potentially, you know, you don't need as much experience to handle that. But for you, as you progressed in your career, did you find end of game situations to be one either easier to handle or less stressful because you'd been through it before? Or where did you start to fit in as you progressed in your career? Well,
0: it's funny in the NBA, it's more important. The reason I say that is players really value what you do in those end game situations in the NBA. And the NBA, it's probably David. I don't know whether it was David Stern or Adam Silver or some combination. They've basically invented ways to make the end of the game last for about four hours. If you're going be a head coach, right. you have to win a game about nine different times. <laughs> so whether it's advancing the ball, what happens in the end, the way they change the last two minutes, the clock stops. It doesn't start. I mean, it's like, you know, in college, it kind of feels like, don't get me wrong, it's important, but the game occurs. There's one or two out of bounds plays and the game's over. And that's the way it goes. In NBA, it's like, no, 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 no. You've been up the whole game. It doesn't matter. And that was a good play, but you <laughs> got to do two more. And, and the other guy's timeout <laughs> yeah. advanced. The guy makes a three. These guys make every shot. If you let anybody shoot the ball at the end of an NBA game, invariably it's going in. So <laughs> it's right. like it, clock management, who you have on the floor. And the play itself are critical, and it's just funny, but it's in players' minds. I remember talking to Brad Stevens, and Brad Stevens isn't a good coach; it's a great coach. And I hope he gets back into coaching and gets out of the front office. But I remember sitting down with Brad. I happened to be doing it was when Tommy Heinsohn, the late great Tommy Heinsohn, first decided he wasn't going to travel anymore. So I got an opportunity that year. I was still working for ESPN, but I got an opportunity to do twenty Celtic road games, twenty of the forty-one road games because Tommy was just doing the home games and then he would do studio for the road games. I talked to Brad and exhibition games and, you know, Brad said, you know, you were a college coach. Well, things different or, you know, it's basketball. Obviously it's the same thing, but, and that was one of the things I remember telling him that players really value. Like if you can get to an end game and draw up a play and your best player or one of your best players gets a good shot and makes the shot, that's so important for the player. Sometimes it's more important than the way you manage the other 47 minutes of the game. So uh, end game situations in the NBA, the experience is important just because you've seen so many plays work against you or you've been lucky enough for some of your plays to work. And again, the longer you coach, the more tapes you see, especially nowadays, you've got a library of plays. Hopefully you tailor them to the players you have. You know, what are you going to do? It's funny how it still comes back to simplicity and preparation. It's not just a question of this. is. We can all draw up nice plays at clinics and put it up on the board, the X's and O's. Hopefully you've practiced them enough and you can execute them enough. And hopefully you've put enough different combinations on the floor. And that's always a challenge in the NBA because you don't have practice time. That's maybe the biggest challenge to coaching in the NBA. In college, you usually have two or three days to get ready for a game. The only time the NBA really is like college in terms of preparation is the playoffs. You play the same team, sometimes seven times in a row. You have time between the games. Travel's not as big a factor in the playoffs, and you can really get ready and zero in on a team. In the NBA, the games just keep coming. You play so many games. Your players, particularly the ones who are playing, getting the minutes, playing 30, 35 minutes a game, you can't practice them. If you do practice, you can only practice for... 20 minutes, you can't scrimmage, you can't do things live. So these situations, being able to manage them and being able to practice them, or sometimes it's a shoot around or, or walkthrough, shoot arounds or meetings in hotel rooms, big ballrooms are sometimes as important. You got your equipment manager, trainer, taping the floor, and you're walking through these things at a ballroom because it's a back to back and it's not just, yeah, okay, put the first five out there. Well, the first five's not always in at the end of the game. Somebody's in foul trouble. Somebody's injured. So hopefully you've had enough different combinations that when you draw a play up, it's not literally for the first time. Some guys want like, look, where the hell am I supposed to be? Hopefully you've practiced it enough times that when you draw it up, you know, it's refreshing them. And this group of five has been out there together. So again, the experience, it's not just, yeah, I got a really good play. There are teams in the NBA. There are guys like LeBron or a Kevin Durant or a Steph that you can draw a play up quick and they can look and they'll go out and execute. There's also other guys that even if you've done it 15 times during the year, you're drawing it up and they have that look in their eyes. They're looking right through you. They're not seeing what you're putting on the board and they're not going to go out there and execute it. So it's a challenge knowing. I always used to talk about it at clinics and guys would look at me like, what are you talking about? Some guys can visualize when you draw on the whiteboard And you're drawing your little X's and O's and arrows. When you start sometimes moving around those magnetic pieces, some guys visualize that, some guys don't. Some guys got to be on the floor and walk through it. You can't do that at the end of the game. But the way you communicate with your team and your team being used to what happens, you know, is particularly... Just call them 20 second timeouts I' call them 30 second timeouts they're a little longer than that it's difficult and the experience is less knowing what the X and O is it's more being prepared, having enough of them knowing which ones work against certain teams. You know, in college, there's zone teams, there's man teams. You know, sometimes it's different from depending on who you're playing. You know, certain teams do this well, don't do that well. So there's so much goes into it. The experience factor to me, again, is the whole picture less than the actual X and O. Like, yeah, that's a great play. It doesn't matter if it's a great play, if your guys aren't ready to execute it. And if you don't have whatever combination you have out there.
1: Coach, if I could drill down on that for just one second, executing a play at the end of a game when you know the team is locked in defensively, likely switching one through five, maybe one through four, and how you still would think about getting a good shot, whether it's slipping stuff, whether it's a misdirection.
0: Well, you you certainly need options. You can draw the play up and it's like, all right, here, you know, screen to screen. Everybody runs a ton of screen to screen or underneath out. Okay, we just did screen-to-screener and they switched it well or they fought over well, whatever it is. Now you're two seconds into the count or three seconds into your five-second count and nobody's open. What do you do then? That's what you're talking about, where a slip is important, where a second option. I always thought simplicity was more important. I don't care if they know I'm running screen-to-screener. You can manipulate a little bit by who you put where. Where do you put the big guy? You're playing a particular team and you know they got a weak league. Defensively, you make sure he's one of the three guys Hopefully. Sometimes you can engineer that. Sometimes you can't. Maybe the team's zoning. You know, what do they do in endgame situations? I still think no matter how good, and this is where you, to me, really draw a line between the great defensive teams. They're going to mess up. You get the right guys in it. I don't care if they know what's coming. They're not going to talk. They're not going to screen the correct way. But again, if it doesn't work, what do you do then? I always thought that it was really important to have your best player or one of your two best guys And by that, I mean somebody who's good enough to create a shot being the primary option. So, okay, I ran screen to screener trying to get you a shot. Dan, you weren't open, but you're there maybe on the right side of the floor, just outside the three second area. And you're one on one with your guy. Now, get open as simple as that. Now you work to get open and I'm going to get you the ball. If you happen to be a big man, I can lob you to you or something. But I'm going to put the ball in somebody's hands now who can manufacture a play. Because particularly in the NBA, that's what usually happens at the end. Your job is to get the ball to the best player. If you get it to Steph Curry, if you get it to Kevin Durant, if you get it to LeBron, your job's done. He's going to do the rest. (laughs) You better get the ball in his hands. Are plays important? Yeah, they're critical. And the more, particularly when you have counters, everybody thinks, oh, he's going to run that. Yeah, you want to have the counter. But the important thing to me is the option, whether it be a slip or whether it be a Get open and, and you laugh and you say, Well, what do you do now? Okay, we just did it. Here's where the four guys are on the floor, and the guy that's inbounding the ball is dying, which by the way, is maybe almost as important as who catches it. You better have somebody inbounding the ball who knows what the hell he's doing. It's amazing. Sometimes people will have a guy inbound the ball because they don't want him to be a guy catching it or a bad free throw shooter. Well, guess what? It's also a bad passer. You can't <laughs> right. get the damn ball inbound. So, you know, who you have inbounding the ball is sometimes as important as who he's inbounding the ball, who he or she is inbounding the ball too. But I just think at the end, when you're three seconds in and your first set of screens haven't worked, your counters better be good or you better have somebody who's going to get open. And you know, LeBron will knock somebody down and you'll go, hey, he didn't get the call. Okay, well, fine. Just make sure LeBron is somewhere in touch with that guy's inbounding the ball. Not that he's 80 feet away, and he has to throw the ball through the backboard to get it to him. Sure. (laughs) Just have him where he's accessible. And if it's Kevin Durant, I was lucky enough to coach Kevin when he was a rookie. Our thing when it would get to three or four seconds would be throw a soft lob pass like a grenade that would land on Kevin's head. You just throw it up over Kevin's head. Don't worry about it. He'll do the rest. He's going to get up there and he'll get the ball, and he's going to get a shot to make you look good. But like, don't be inbounding the ball with somebody else. I'm not going to name another player. Just throw a damn lob pass up over Kevin's head and your job is done. It's a little harder when it's a smaller guy. You know, maybe getting Steph the ball, you got to run him off a bunch of screens. But again, he's got to, at some point in that clock, use some ingenuity himself to get open or there's enough time on the clock to somebody else has the ball and knows. I just watched an NBA game last night. I think it was Denver late in the game, they're down three and somebody burped up a three that shouldn't. It was wide open. You know, the usual you're open for a reason. He takes a three, like 20 some seconds to go. And Jokic is like there on top of the key, like, give me the ball. I want to shoot it. And the guy not only missed it, it was a brick. It barely hit the board. And you can see Jokic (laughs) just like drop his head. And Popeye Jones, who was one of my assistants in Brooklyn is coaching because Michael Malone is in the protocol. And I can see Popeye think the same thing, like, why did that guy just take that three? <laughs> well, guess what? He was open, he burped it up, and they lost the damn game. If you <laughs> take the three sure. and misses it, you did your job. If yeah. somebody else takes the three who's not a good three-point shooter and shoots a brick, you didn't do your job.
2: Coach, staying on the thread of giving the ball to your a big man, if your big man's your best player, but if we move the ball to the sideline out of bounds and just ways to get your big man a post-touch. So maybe he's not a Jokic type where you necessarily want him running to get the ball at the perimeter, but how you find ways to get a good, decent post-touch and what factor does how much time you have on the clock play into his ability to get a post-touch and finish?
0: The timing is huge. I mean, it's almost always going to be some version of a cross screen or a diagonal screen. I mean, the big guy, again, some guys are really good at manipulating their fat butts and just like, you put him down on the ball side on the side out of bounds, short of a dead front, he'll get open. He's gonna hold his guy off and he'll put a hand up there. But that direct pass, there aren't a lot of bigs in the league, frankly, that people go to in end game situations. And when they do, it's usually not down on the box. Oftentimes it's on the elbow. Yeah. They love the bigs who can pass the ball, they can shoot it a little bit. If you're going to a big at the end of the game, it better be somebody, A, who can shoot free throws, B, who can pass the ball because he's probably going to get double teamed in that situation there at the end of the game. And I think the way you get him open is screen. Obviously, you like to have big, small screens. You don't want to screen big for big where it's an easy switch for them. John Stockton, one of the things that Stock did better than anybody else in the league was set screens. Call Malone got open more times in the NBA because John Stockton was setting a screen for him. Jerry Sloan would have the smallest guy, the point guard, screening for the four man, And John was the best screener. People would say he was the most illegal screener of all time. But he was an unbelievable. When John Stockton set his screen, whether it was a cross screen or a diagonal, his man got open. Well, that man was usually Carl Malone. And usually the guy that was guarding John Stockton couldn't switch on the Carl Malone. Right. So again, mm-hmm. it's who you have setting that screen. Whether it's a diagonal or whether it's a cross screen, a lot of times people will screen up and then screen away. I think there's less at the end of a game, less getting the ball down inside. You know, you talked about, Dan, you asked the question before, on a baseline out of bounds, what do you do with all the switching? That's one of the big challenges, end game NBA. How do you get a three when everybody knows you want it? shoot a three, you know, you switch everything and you just, you're not going to give it up. The debate, which rages on and on, there's more guys now international. I was lucky. I coached international basketball for years and years, going back to the seventies in the summer, talking about another thing about young coaches. I always coached in the summer in Europe or in Puerto Rico, got a chance to coach an extra 20 or 30 games. And again, you could do that when you're at New Hampshire college and Wagner. It's a little tougher when you're at Seton Hall. You can't get away for two or three months. But all those international games, if you watch an international game, whether it be in their leagues or a true international team, you don't see guys making threes at the end. They foul all the time. They foul before you shoot the ball. There's more and more teams in the NBA doing it now, but still not the majority. FIBA games, Olympic games, national teams, they all foul. They've they've grown up doing that. They're used to it. They foul on the catch. They say, well, what if the guy catches it and shoots it? You follow the shooter. They've done it their whole time in the NBA, particularly when I first got in the NBA. And I was international. I didn't realize at the time that was just what I believed in. Later on, I realized if you let an NBA guy take a shot at the end of the game, I don't care if he's falling down, whatever it is, if he's thirty-five feet away, he's gonna make it more times than he's gonna miss it. So if you let them shoot it, the ball's gonna go in more times than you want it to <laughs> go in. Now, if yeah. you're up three, you're okay. You're up two you better foul because you're going to lose the game. And that's become an art. More and more teams do it now than used to do it. It's not an easy thing to do. And again, if you haven't practiced it in the NBA, that means early in the year because you reach a point in the NBA, probably not quite, well, this year, you got to throw it out with the COVID, but you reach a point in February or March where practices almost don't exist, where you don't have five-on-five five in practice to work on something like that. So you can walk through it at a shoot-around or in a hotel ballroom, but hopefully you've worked on that in the preseason. And when you do have practices in the NBA, you got to cover these situations. And one of the situations is, you know, how do we defend at the end of the game? How do we defend when they don't take a timeout, they come up the court, and you know they're going to take a three? How do they defend when they timeout, advance the ball, and they're going to run an SOB. How are you going to defend that three-point shot? Or are you going to foul or not foul? And I remember so many times, A, not having practiced it enough. And I'd go to God. When I first, they replaced Avery Johnson at Christmas when we were in Brooklyn together. And second and third game I'm coaching, we're playing the Wizards in Washington. And can't remember what it was, Bradley Beal or whoever it was. We have a timeout. One time we didn't have a timeout, so we hadn't worked on it. We come down. Bradley hits a three to put the game into the first overtime. Now in the first overtime, we have a lead a timeout and they advance the ball. And I'm telling the players, we're going to foul before he shoots it. And their eyes are like bugging out of their heads. Like, what do you mean we're going to foul? Because, you know, we had done it. Yeah. Bradley hits another three to put it into the second overtime. We finally won in the third overtime. I think because he missed it, not because he <laughs> fouled him. And the game's over and, and the reporters are going like, well, do you believe? I said, yeah, I believe in fouling but we haven't had practice. I said, if this happens again, it's not going to be. Sure enough, like a week or 10 days later, we're playing the Knicks in the Garden and it was a big game. It's our first year in Brooklyn. It's Brooklyn at New York in the Garden and we have a three-point lead late in the game. We fouled J.R. Smith and they were shocked. Just as he crosses half court, it was like three seconds to go or two seconds to go. And instead of letting him dribble in and shoot it, we fouled him. And they were like surprised, frankly. They made the first, missed the second, and we ended up winning the game. But we had had an opportunity to practice the damn thing. If you haven't practiced it, you can't can't do it. We lost one. My answers are too (laughs) long. I'm coaching Golden State. We're playing the Lakers Rambo's coaching, Kurt Rambis is coaching the Lakers. We don't foul Glenn Rice in regulation. He knocks a three down. So like I'm furious screaming at our guys because we had worked on it. and We didn't foul him. Glenn Rice makes three, put the game into overtime. We're up three. Now we're in the first overtime and we foul Glenn Rice and he's got two shots. There's like three seconds to go in the game and he makes the first and he perfectly skims the ball, which again is the thing to practice. Some guys can do it. Some guys miss the rim. You know, yeah, to miss. Yeah. the stuff that happens when guys are trying <laughs> to miss. It's another reason to foul, frankly. But Glenn does it perfectly. He like skims it. It hits like the back of the rim and goes straight up in the air. And Kobe is at the three point line on the outside, like where Michael used to do the same thing. Because you can't get in front of a guy. Like if a guy's on the foul line, you're inside. If yeah. you're on, you know, the defensive yeah. team, you can get in front of a guy. Outside the three point line, all you can do is get next to the guy. And Bimbo Coles is trying to tackle Kobe, but he's next to him on the outside. And of course, he can't really get in front of him. Kobe goes in on a dead run. Glenn hits the back of the rim. The ball goes up in the air. Kobe jumps and like catches the ball like in his right hand at like 13 feet, like (laughs) literally like catches it, looks at it, whatever. (laughs) Smack dumps it. And now we lose the game in the second overtime. So we didn't foul one time. Rice makes the shot. We do foul a second time. He misses. Kobe dunks the missed second free throw. And we lose the game in the second overtime. So you can't cover everything. Yeah. But you, uh, those end game situations in the NBA are fun. But that experience that we talked about before, if you coach long enough, you've seen enough things happen. You just shake your head. The percentages are with you if you foul. But you'll be surprised watching a game how many people do not foul. All right, coach.
2: Our next start sub sit for you. We call this tough to teach and specifically looking at post play. So, we're going to give you three phases of a post catch or a post play and which is the toughest to teach. So, the first one is a big who can do his work early and kind of catch on a seal for a quick finish, or a big who has patience and can survey and pass out of the post. Or finally, a big who can kind of get you a bucket and go to work and, you know, teaching them one-on-one moves where they got to make two, three dribbles and try to finish.
0: Wow. I like all of (laughs) those. I'm going to sit the last one because there are more guys who, when they do get the ball, can get you a bucket or can get fouled or do something with it. So I'm going to sit the skilled one where the other two are tough. I actually think the first one is almost a nuance. Doing your work early is really important, but I'm going to make that the sub, the second one. Just because that's like, you're like in the promised land. Then if you got a guy that's doing that, it's unbelievable. So I can't make it the starting one because the other one is more when you do get him the ball. You have to teach that you got to be able to teach somebody to recognize a double or see that the doubles coming or be poised enough to either throw it out of there or sometimes even debate the guy, you know, to know when to kick it out or when to hold the ball and actually force against the double. I think that one, those two are hard for me to differ. All three of them are great. Those are great teaching points. But I think that one, the patience, the poise to handle that situation, I think they have to have that first. That do you work early is a home run. I mean, you get a guy that does his work early. It almost takes care of the other two. Right. And The last one is there's a lot of guys who can score when they get the ball, but getting them the ball or getting them the ball, maybe as importantly, in good position, guys who don't know how to do their work early end up the ball four feet further out or four feet higher than they want to be. And all of a sudden, a good thing doesn't happen. So those three are really tough for me to differentiate.
2: Coach, two follow-ups. A player who does his work early, have you found more often than not that's more in the DNA of the player or ingrained in the player? Or is that something that can be taught and coerced out of a player?
0: It's something that can be taught. It's not the easiest teach, but I do think that's a skill you can develop and some guys can get better at. It also goes hand in hand with something that you're trying to develop on both levels, whether it's college or the pros, is strength. The guy better be strong enough to hold off the guy that's defending him. So perfect example is Fuey's guy at Gonzaga right now. Chet Holmgren, I don't care how good Fee is and he's great teaching the back to the basket moves and you know, creating space and the things you're talking about, Chet would have trouble moving me. Right. So until he gets bigger and stronger, a yeah. big part of his, you know, learning how to do that is gonna be acquiring the strength. That strength factor is a huge part of getting yourself open. If you can't hold a guy off like Charles Barkley, it didn't matter what you couldn't move him. I said, you know, Carl Malone yeah. before with John. When Carl came across, he would stop under the basket or he wouldn't even clear the lane. When he stopped, that was it. You weren't getting him off that position. So he would just widen out and he had a big butt like Charles and he would just stand there like that. You were not moving him out of there. Same thing with a guy like Shaq. Like people say, like, well, front them or get them out of there. That ain't happening. (laughs) Other guys, you can move them out. You can get them higher. You can do some other things. That strength factor, that size factor is really important. Coach,
2: you mentioned when to pass against the double and when to go to work against the double. So what would be the circumstances in those cases?
0: I think two things. First of all, recognize who's doubling. Sometimes they're doubling with a little guy that's like a gnat, like it's like a mosquito trying to do something. (laughs) Other than trampling him or tripping over the guy, he's not a factor. You can pass out over him. He's too little. He can't affect you. Or is the guy coming down a strong player or a long player? Everybody loves long players now, not just the pure height, but the size of their arms, the wingspan. You got to recognize, is it a good double or is it not a good double? You got to recognize what the coach wants. We sometimes you want your best guy for him to force up a bad shot is better than to kick it out and somebody else to you know be you're living for the shot from the perimeter. Everybody goes yeah, double the ball, get him out of his hands. We'll take our chance with Dan taking a jump shot. The hell with that. But you know you tell a guy after he does that a couple you say I I don't care if you commit an offensive foul, you're shooting the ball. We're gonna get it to you. You manufacture and again he's got to be somebody who's good enough to do it. But either split the double. Or take the Akeem fade away. I want you taking a shot or you getting fouled in that situation. Normally, in the course of a game, it's recognized what's better. The guy's wide open for a shot. Who's doubling me? Is it easy for me to pass out of the double or not? And sometimes that in and out is a great thing, you know, where the ball goes in, kicks out, and then repost. And repost goes hand in hand with what you're talking about doing your work. Yeah. There are guys who are so good at re, they kick the ball out and then they just move you backwards. The refs are better at calling that in the NBA right now. But a lot of times on the repost, the big man does such a good job acquiring better position that now when he catches the ball a second time, he's much closer to the basket or he's in, in better position to, to get something done down inside. So that's maybe two on two, maybe three on three. But again, that's something you drill a lot, and that's something you can do pregame or out of practice, even if it's not a tough practice. You know, you tell your players, like, in the locker room after the game, guys, we're coming in tomorrow. We're going to be on the floor 45 minutes, tops. That's it. But that three-on-three, you're going to do that. You're going to do some of the post-up. Maybe you're going to do a five-on-oh endgame situations. You'll run some out-of-bounds plays, but you're running 5 on 0 You're not running them five-on-five at the end of the game. And some guys are down working on their shot. Some guys are with the bigs working on posting, reposting, you know, handling double teams, what you're going to do against that. Again, that's the knack of putting an NBA practice together when there's very little five on five. You might not even have 10 bodies to do stuff. You know, it's nice when you're preseason, when you got two groups of five and you're running up and down the floor, five on oh and this and that, or you're working on doubles. More often your doubles late in the year are going to be two on two or three on three or maybe even two offensive players and three defensive players, you know, and you're doubling up or more often than not, your defensive players are your assistant coaches. And yeah. again, that's where putting the staff together. Hopefully your big man coach is a big man. So he can double team the guy. Or he can lean on the guy when he's teaching him. I'm joking about it, but it's true. The better when you have some former players as assistants and they can still get out on the floor. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. If Dick Carter and I are your assistants, <laughs> You ain't getting anything done. If it's Rick Carlisle and Austin Turner and Johnny Davis, they can get out there and they can get something done with a guy. And so it makes a difference. Young assistants who can still play are a luxury in the NBA. They really are. Coach, one last thing with scoring against the double when the defense
2: is doubling from the baseline and forcing the big maybe to go baseline and doubling on that dribble. What do you tell the big if you want him to try to score in terms of how to maybe finish before the double comes or trying to get to the middle?
0: Well, the knack is there. Sometimes the doubler, it depends on how good it is. There's a real knack, as you know, to the double team on the post. Let's just say you want to turn the guy middle. If you take away baseline and the guy that comes down really does a good job, maybe you cross legs, maybe not, but you're shoulder to shoulder or you're knee to knee. You're just not allowing him to go that way. Yeah, it's easy to say, well, force him behind the backboard. What are you going to do? There are some bigs who are good enough to actually, you know, take a dribble and do something. What happens more often than not, and a lot of teams in the league have gotten to that double and sometimes from the opposite side, they come from the opposite side and take away the rotate down and take away the pass to the other corner but they love for bigs to turn around like turn either way but get the ball to that opposite corner yeah. that three-point shot from the opposite corner to me that's where it comes into the skill of a big there are bigs who are really good have really good post moves are really good free throw shooters but can't pass for shit they're worthless so those are the guys you're going to double all the time they just can't get the ball out of it they're not good at you know faking or getting the ball over a big double or doing something there's guys making a lot of money in the NBA who just can't pass very well out of a double. That's what they're seeing as much as they can. Now, their coaches know that, too. They try and ice them. They throw the ball in, and the guy just cuts through. They get them out of there as much as you can. And it, again, it's the skill, drilling what they're good. There, there's not a lot of Vlade Divac's and Nikola is these bigs who just eat you up when you double-team him. And even if you don't double-team they find the open guy. Arvidas Sabonis was unbelievable, he was one of the best passers ever. He used to throw, I mean, behind the back, pass. Yeah. The guys would cut, he'd catch the ball with the back and he'd have it in <laughs> one hand and the guy would cut and he'd just like throw behind the back pass <laughs> to the opposite box. He was incredible, but he saw the floor and he was a great passer and weighed 350 <laughs> or whatever the hell he weighed. You couldn't move yeah. him. So it was, it's the skill set. What can you do? And and drilling it, that passing out of doubles, that's something you can drill it all day. I almost think that's one of the hardest things to teach. It's really. I think difficult to make a guy into a good passer. Yeah, if that's not in his skill set, you can make him a little bit better. To go from being a bad passer to being effective, that's a tough one. That's like teaching somebody to rebound. The great rebounders have a knack for going after the ball. You can yell all you want and scream all you want about guys. There are just guys who see it, who see rebounds both offensively and defensively. They're gifted rebounders, rebounders, shot blockers. There are some things that you can improve people, but to get people who are not good at the skill at all to become good or really good, that's very difficult. No. And passing out of doubles, yeah, you can make them better, but you're going to be shaking your head at that guy um, when he's hitting people yeah. in the shins or getting his passes deflected all the time. And you don't give up. You got to keep working on it. But that guy's make the simple pass. I don't care that you like miss an occasional guy. If you can get him to throw it to the guys that are wearing the same color jersey as he is, that's a good thing. Maybe yeah. it didn't lead to a shot, but you still have the ball. Uh, yeah. you know, that exactly. Recognition of the jersey color is a big thing for bad yeah. passers.
1: Absolutely. Coach, our last one here. We got one more kind of tactical one. The theme of this one is stopping a run. And we've asked this one before. It's a fun one to ask. But the other team's gone on a little bit of a run. As a coach, how you look at trying to kind of break up that run. So start, sub, or sit, calling a timeout and having a little powwow with the group, changing your defense, zoning it up, or changing some sort of defensive coverage, or changing personnel, getting some subs in and changing the look on the floor. Start, sub, or sit.
0: Personnel, sit. Some runs, you have to take a timeout. Phil Jackson is notorious. Uh, just refuse to take timeouts. Pop gets like that sometimes. Pop is great calling timeouts. Every once in a while, he'll get upset because he's made the point and guys aren't listening, and he'll go, let them figure it out. (laughs) Timeout, I think, is, I would have actually put, I know it's not there, my fourth one would have been an offensive play. I think you have a better Uh chance of stopping a run by good offensive execution because if your team's not buying in or not defending particularly well or the other team's making shots, sometimes it matters less what you're doing on the defensive end. You better stop the damn thing either with a timeout Well, you better get the ball to your best player or get the ball inside and get to the free throw line because you can stop it with offense. You know, it's it's always what do you do when you're down 10? You got to play both ends. You got to get a stop and a score. Well, sometimes the stop is harder to get, particularly in the NBA than the score and I forget the three you gave me what was the third one that I'm forgetting
1: changing the defensive coverage
0: less so in the NBA it matters it, well I shouldn't say that you better be able to double like when one of the great players gets on a run you better get the ball out of his hands that guy shouldn't be able to go for 10 12 points in a row even if it is LeBron or even if it is KD then you just double team him you probably can't triple team him but you got to get the ball out of his hands yeah if it's a good player. But again, the defensive adjustments to me are more difficult. In the old days in college, you'd stand up and you'd go, whoa, we're running four down. Like Pops four down, was get the ball to Tim Duncan. Want to stop the run? Get the ball to Duncan down on the left box. He'll stop the run right there because he's going to score. Players are important. I think timeouts are critical for coaches. I think you really do your team a disservice. Phil had a different philosophy, and obviously it was extremely effective. But I think a coach has got to use a timeout. That enables you to do this subbing if you want to. Yeah. Sometimes you can't sub because the game's going up and down. Sometimes you take a foul. Literally, you take a foul just to stop the clock so you can get somebody out of the game or make somebody else beat you. But I think timeouts are critical. I think you do it with offense. I think an offensive call and getting the ball to the guy you want or to a position on the floor, make the refs make it. You get yourself to the free throw line. You know, you keep missing jump shot after jump shot like, hey. Let's get a layup or let's get a free throw. They might be good jump shots you're getting. They ain't going down. Sure. Let's let the ref blow the whistle, get somebody to the free throw line or get our big guy the ball in the paint. That'll stop a run.
1: Coach, so I love the fourth one in there. Combining, I guess, two of our discussions so far, going to the timeout that you call and talking about the experience as a coach, when you will call a timeout to stop a run, let's say as a younger coach versus maybe when you had more experience, was the tenor of that timeout different, like as a young guy where you're wanting to call a timeout and really get into them about something versus maybe with more experience, call a timeout, let them take a breather, talk about something tactical? What were you on that as you progressed?
0: Without question, I was more, I guess I was always considered to be a screamer, but without question, I was more. I'd be yelling at somebody for not doing something, whatever it was. You're not playing hard enough. You're not fronting. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And oftentimes, maybe I didn't help them. Ideally, when you come out of the timeout, they've learned something that's going to help them out on the floor. Now, again, sometimes it's appropriate. They're just not playing hard yeah. and they deserve to get reamed. And that's the biggest thing. And again, that's Pop. We sat with Pop. You know, the NBA the timeouts are so long and you see the little powwow between the head coach and the assistants. And sometimes we'd, you know, stand out there and you'd go, uh, we got a front or something like that. And Papa go, yeah, okay, sure. It's so, <laughs> like, shut up. And you just stand there for like two minutes and then he'd walk in and he'd say one thing and, and that would be it. And sometimes you just needed to calm him down, slow the other team down. Yeah. You know, the timeout actually served a purpose. But sometimes you do something. You would sub, which is one of the things you talked about. He'd say you would change the coverage. We're going to front him now or we're going to change where we're doubling from. We're not doubling from the top. We're going to double from the opposite side. Hopefully, in addition to literally allowing a team to rest, and sometimes it's as simple as that. Your team's exhausted. Better either get fresh players on the floor or take a timeout so the guys that you feel have to be in the game, particularly late in the game, they're rested. Sometimes your team's just out of gas and they need the two minutes or whatever the hell. It seems like it's an hour sometimes in NBA (laughs) timeout, but that timeout just serves a purpose from a rest standpoint. So I think it's a lot of different things. And I think, again, that's the experience we talked about early. You've been in enough of them. You've been on both sides of enough of them. Frothing at the mouth doesn't usually work. You know, getting in a guy's grill doesn't. Sometimes it's appropriate, but less so. Hopefully you've listened to your assistants when you're standing out there. And hopefully you're bringing something in at a timeout that's going to help them. It's actually an adjustment. Sometimes an adjustment isn't needed. A little more effort's needed or rest is needed. Or like you said, it's always been, and we haven't talked about it much, but one of the most effective, without question, coaching points has always been and will always be the bench. Somebody's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, put him on the bench or put her on the bench. That's always been a great teacher. It always will be a great teacher. And if you're afraid to do that, or if your players know you're afraid to take a certain guy out or a certain lady out, because when they screw up, that's not a good thing taking a player out to make a point is oftentimes a very good thing.
1: Absolutely. Well, Coach, you are off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thank you for playing with us. It a lot of fun. We got one more question for you to close the show. But before we do, this has been a lot of fun for Pat and I. Thank you very much for your time and your thoughts this morning.
2: Yeah, thank
0: you, Coach. No, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
1: Coach, as we close here today, you've had such a great career at multiple levels and so much success. Wondering what one of the best investments you've made in your career has been.
0: It would be split the hair. To me, putting aside players, because I joke about that, but the longer you coach, the more you realize it. Usually, particularly in the NBA, and the reason I say that is there's only 30 jobs. There's nobody in the NBA that can't coach. Usually the team that has the better players wins the game. It's important at some point in your coaching career to come to grips with that. You'll never sleep. You'll never understand reality. If you don't understand the reality of talent, but putting that aside, I think to have people you can lean on and that there's two categories to that I talked about in terms of getting a job, but people who you value, usually an older and experienced coach, somebody you work for or just have observed and you know, is going to tell you the truth and can really be helpful and be critical. You need to be critical of yourself and you need to challenge the things you're doing. And that goes into your assistance. To me, that goes into getting the best assistance, getting assistants who aren't afraid to disagree with you. You should want assistants who think for themselves. Again, that gets into that, in my opinion, has been a head coach is a big plus. Someone who sat in that same chair and knows a little bit more of the things that that go into every decision that you make. I think knowing that you need help and more importantly, knowing can help can be really beneficial to have a resource or resources someone you can put the phone or meet with, talk to in the off season, during the season, somebody whose opinion you value and or to have that on your own staff to not have a bunch of guys shaking their head. Yeah, we're doing the right thing. Everything you do is brilliant. (laughs) You guys are shaking their head this way all the time. That's not a good thing. So I just think that put together a strong staff and have a group of people, maybe it's only one person, but have at least a mentor advisor type person that will challenge you. Hopefully that sees you, sees your team play and can give you an objective evaluation or criticism or reinforcement. Hey, don't get down on yourself. You guys are playing hard. You're doing the right thing. You're just not there yet. Stay the course or you're out of your mind. You got to change the defense or why are you playing this guy? Whatever you're doing. You need that kind of advice, either internally or externally. That, to me, is the investment that you need. You know, investment in good advice.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week, coaching. And we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping Glass. Slapping Glass.
0: That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Well,
2: all <laughs> slapping Glass.